It's time once again for another episode of All That's Jazz, the podcast that explores everything in the world of jazz, including artist profiles, the next generation, educators, festivals, producers, venues, photographers, media, and a whole lot more. And here now is your host, Alan Scott. Hello and welcome to another episode of All That's Jazz. Today we're going to be speaking with Grammy Award-winning tenor saxophonist Wayne Ascafri. Wayne and I met uh, about uh, 22 years ago. Ever since then, Wayne, I have to tell you, I've been terribly impressed by what you have done in this business and how far you have come. It's absolutely amazing, and thanks for joining us here today. Oh, thank you very much. I appreciate you saying that. Yeah, it's my pleasure being here. Thanks for inviting me. So by way of introduction to maybe some of our listeners who may not know your background, I know that uh, you actually lived in New Haven, Connecticut, but you came to the United States. Was it London uh, with your mom? Yeah, that's right. I was born in, I was born in London and uh, finally settled in New Haven when I was about 10 years old or so. We moved down around a few places before we actually ended up in New Haven. And it's a great place. Uh, I uh, was born and raised in Connecticut myself and spent a lot of time there. Although, unlike you, I never went to Yale uh, other than to go to a football game against Brown. That's about as far as I got. <laughs> yeah, well, I was pretty lucky because my, my mom took a, took a job in the alumni department at Yale. And um, so uh, we lived in Yale housing. So I really had a lot of access to the great facilities at the school. And I actually did a few college-level classes there when I was a high school student. Even though I didn't actually go there for a, a university degree, I did spend a lot of time in the school. And, and in many ways, I consider that a kind of a, my start being in those walls. So. And of course, while you were in New Haven, uh, one of the first entrees to music for you would have been the fact that you were involved in the New Haven Choir. Yeah, I was a, I was a member of the uh, the Trinity Choir of Men and Boys in New Haven, which is actually a pretty reputable uh, boys choir and, and quite noted um, in the world. And we, you know, made some albums and did some tours, and it was a, it was a pretty uh, a pretty serious serious group and a, and a great way to be introduced into a formal musical education. So where did the departure from choral work or vocal work transcend into saxophone? Uh, well, you know, I was taking saxophone lessons. I started when I was in, in middle school and then into high school. So uh, there there was some crossover there where I would bring my saxophone to choir practice and, and all that. Um, but I kind of made the decision to leave the choir for um, not necessarily musical art or artistical reasons. I mean, I was getting older, my voice was, was changing, and it wasn't quite as cool in high school to be a member of a boys' choir. So my priorities were shifting. <laughs> so, uh, um, and I really loved the saxophone, and it was, it was taking a lot of my time in addition to sports and stuff like that. So then the choir kind of um, uh, subsided a little bit. You know, I, I did end up still participating as as what they call a man in the choir for a little while but then ultimately i just uh stuck to the saxophone well and of course uh while you were in high school uh, i understand you met uh, jackie mclean and uh, that uh, kind of changed everything for you didn't it for sure yeah i mean new haven has a has a great not just because of yale but they have a really great arts community so there are some great organizations like the educational center for the arts where i attended and where i really got a start in jazz and also the neighborhood music school yeah, when I um, met a good friend of mine, saxophone Jim, saxophonist Jimmy Green, he introduced me to Jack and McLean, and then I joined the Artist Collective, and that really kind of uh, spearheaded things in, in another direction, and and um, really kind of 
thrust me into another level of jazz education, which I really, really appreciated. I mean, Jack J Max, my musical, my musical father, and really has a lot to do with the foundation of you know my concept. So obviously, a, a, a tremendous mentor to you in terms of putting you on your path toward where you are today. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. And then after high school, you went to uh, Hart, which uh, you had a full scholarship. Was that based on music or uh, academics? Uh, I guess a little bit of both. I mean, like I said, you know, J-Mac was, was the head of the Hart. The, um, I think it's called the Jack Clean Institute now, but when I went to school, it was called the African-American Music Department. Um, and so J-Mac was the head of that department. So he offered me, because I was already at the Artist Collective and he, he knew my playing and, and thought highly of me, he, he offered me a full scholarship just to attend Hart. So that's how that happened. But then after uh, that, you had gone on to the Thelonious Monk Institute. Right. Actually, a lot of my friends um, after college moved uh, straight to New York because they wanted to jump jump into the scene. Uh, and I really did, too. For a time, uh, J-Mac actually had to convince me to not do that and to uh, apply for the Thelonious Monk Institute. Um, and he, he was really a big uh, proponent of um, getting as many degrees as you could and studying as much as you could. And, you know, he told me New York would always be there, wasn't going anywhere, and that he really wanted me to focus on, you know, getting my master's degree. And the Long Institute gave me a great opportunity to do that because, again, that's another full scholarship uh, situation, and, and that even covers housing. He was he really thought it was an opportunity that I shouldn't pass up, and, and I auditioned and I got accepted. So that, that was another great, a great chapter. Well, you've obviously done very well on the academic side as well, because you graduated with a master's degree, and then uh, that's maybe when you might have moved on toward New York? Yeah, right after the Flonese Monk Institute, which at that time was in, in Boston um, at the New England Conservatory. Um, yeah, I went. I moved to New York in, in 99, the summer of 99, actually. And uh, yeah, I've, I've been here since. You've worked with a lot of people uh, in uh, your career, and you've also worked with some vocalists. Yeah, yeah, I'm definitely, uh, I've definitely done my best to be open-minded and play with as many different kind of people as I can. And uh, yeah, um, working with vocalists has always been an important part uh, of 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 what I wanted to do. Partly because I came up as a singer, as you mentioned, and I've always had you know, an affinity for, for vocal melodies, you know, but also some of my favorite recordings are with vocalists, like all the works of Billie Holiday and also, you know, the famous John Coltrane and Johnny Hartman. All those albums um, really um, had a large effect on me. So I've always wanted to um, play with a singer and I always felt that that was an important part of my development is being able to make music in that in that situation. So when you got to New York, what, what was the impetus there to uh, keep this thing going for you? Uh, as far as playing music, yes, um, New York is such an inspirational place. I mean, you have the best of the best here, not just in music and arts, but in everything. So um, it was easy to be inspired once I came to New York. And, and also growing up in New Haven, I've always been, been coming to New York to hear music. And uh, even before I, I actually moved here, I was attending um, in high school. I attended the Jazzmobile. Not many people know that, but I attended the Jazzmobile in the uh, 90s. And so I was always coming to New York and being around musicians. And I just always wanted to be here. So it was really a thrill when I got here. And then to be able to hear groups like the Mingus Big Band and, and, and all my favorite musicians on stage playing night after night was, was thrilling to me. All I wanted to do was just practice and get to the to the point where I could actually join them on stage. So, Were there any particular mentors or influencers uh, in New York itself that pushed you even further to a different level of the career? 
Well, I mean, I think everyone I've worked with in many ways has has had a huge impact on pushing me to the next place. I mean, when I first moved here, in fact, Ron Carter was, uh, he really encouraged me to come to New York after I graduated the, the Monk Institute. And he reached out to several musicians. He, you know, he reached out to Wallace Roney, who we just lost, and, and he got me to go over to Wallace's house and play. Um, Ron would invite me to, to, every time he played at the Blue Note, he would invite me to come and sit in with his group. And he was very encouraging. And also, while I was in the Monk Institute, I met a lot of great musicians, and I took it upon myself to reach out to those musicians once I moved here. So um, that's how I started working with pianist Eric Reed, and that was kind of like the first real gig I had in New York. That's how I met Carl Allen and Don Sickler and a lot of people that I ended up working with later on. I met them through the Monk Institute. So when I got here, I just reached out to all of them, and they were all very supportive and, and, and offered me different opportunities. How would you describe your music in terms of uh, either its artistic approach or general approach that you take to the music itself? It, is there a classification or, or how you like to be seen? Uh, that's an interesting question. I mean, you know, first of all, you're never going to be seen how you want how you want to be seen. You're going to be seen how you're you're perceived, and that's just, that's just uh, human nature. That's just the way it goes. But um, I mean, all I can be is who I am, and you know, really. You mentioned Jack and McLean earlier, and, and I consider myself part of the Jack and McLean dynasty, and, and I really try to um, model myself in, in, in many ways after him, not necessarily literally, but um, just kind of generally. I mean, he was um, a very proud individual. He, he demanded a lot of respect, and he also gave a lot of love and respect to people. And um, his concept of music uh, wasn't one-dimensional, and I think that's important. Uh, I was a student of bebop and, and of people like... Uh, Lester Young and Dexter Gordon, you know, he's really one of the pioneers of even the avant-garde movement. I mean, he kept developing, you know, I mean, he studied people like John Coltrane. Um, you know, he, he was listening, friends with Ornette Coleman, listening to that music. And he um, he went on to be a very important part of the avant-garde music and be an important part of how the vocabulary of the music developed. So, and in the same lines with people like Wayne Shorter and Miles Davis and Herbie Hancock, these musicians all uh, were students of the music, but kept on developing. And that's what I want to do. You know, I don't want to be categorized as, you know, a hard bop player or even a modern player or this or that. You know, I'm just an artist and I'm, I'm making music and I want to try to always push myself artistically. So I hope people receive it in that way as, as opposed to being some sort of stylistic presentation. I asked that question because I saw in an article somewhere where you were quoted as saying, this is you speaking that I do sometimes get that nerdy jazz thing and I want to think of more technical stuff. What does that mean? Did you ever think of yourself as being nerdy? Uh, well, no, I mean, I think, I think it was just kind of a, yeah, right. Jazz musicians being nerdy is kind of like a, uh, you know, they don't necessarily go together. But I think my, my point was that uh, anybody who studies, who studies their craft uh, in, in detail, I think sometimes can get caught up in the detail and, and not realize the bigger picture. And, and I think that's, that's all I meant. I mean, when you're playing in the collegiate environment or you're teaching music to students, uh, you know, you're talking about a lot of the theory and technical aspects of the music in addition to other things. But the bottom line is when you're on that stage, when you're in the jazz club or when you're in that concert hall, people are listening to you. They don't know anything about two five ones or voice leading or you know different substitutions or or this or that. They don't know any harmony. They don't know anything. All they know is what sounds good and what doesn't sound good. And it's important to remember that. I think. And um, I think all of my favorite musicians have a perfect balance of that, including all the ones that I mentioned um, before. They have a perfect balance of 
being masters of their craft and understanding all of the theoretical and technical aspects of the music, but also understanding um, that this is art and um, that we're trying to, to, to please people and have people feel a certain way. Um, and that goes beyond technique and, and, uh, and theory and, and, and what have you. Sure. And, and that speaks very well. And that was uh, very well articulated by you because when you get on the stage or you're in a performance mode or a recording mode, I'm sure there comes a point where once the music starts rolling that the technical side gets pushed aside, if you will, and the emotion takes over and the spirituality sometimes of the music and the possession of that and the passion has to come to the forefront. Of course, of course. I mean, yeah. Again, we have to rem remember why we're doing this um, and what, what exactly we are doing. We're, we're trying to uh, evoke thought and evoke emotion and, and provide comfort to people through sound and through art. So, uh, yeah, that's the goal. And we should, we should remember that no matter how much, how much we learn. And having said that, I listened completely top to bottom like three times already, uh, your current release, Humble Warrior. And I have to tell you, uh, I, I, I'm absolutely stunned. Uh, the music is just uh, at another level. I know oh, you have contributed so many wonderful things uh, through your career so far as a sideman also, but as a, a leader as well. But this one, I think uh, it, it just, to me, comes to the forefront of what you've done. Oh, well, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty happy with how it turned out. And yeah, I feel good. I feel really great as to how it's being received. People really seem to, to, to enjoy it. So that makes me happy. Well, and you're doing this for the first time on the uh, Smoke Session Records label. How did that come about? Uh, well, you know, I've known, um, I've known Paul Stash, who, who's the um, producer of the album, and he, he, he owns Smoke Records, Smoke Sessions Records, and also Smoke Jazz Club. And, um, you know, I've known him for, for many, many years. Um, you know, he used to you know, he used to work at, at Smoke as Augie's before it was Smoke, and then he went on to own Smoke and, and, and turn that into a really beautiful establishment. So he's always been supportive of my music and, and always been supportive of me sitting in there and, um, you know, then got me some of my first gigs in New York at Smoke. And, you know, so we've always had a great relationship and become friends over the years. And I've had different um, business relationships with different labels before this, and we just never were able to um, kind of coordinate so that I could record for Smoke. So, but um, that finally worked out now, came to fruition. So I think it was at the right time too. You know, I think this is a great first outing, so to speak, on the Smoke Sessions label. Um, and I look forward to doing, uh, doing, doing more. Well, it's again, uh, an absolutely amazing recording. And if you don't mind, I'd like to talk a little bit about it and uh, break some of it down, if I may. Sure. Uh, and let's talk first of all uh, about who is on uh, that particular recording with you. You start out with uh, your pianist David Kukowski. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Say, so Dave and I met um, actually in in the Mingus bands when we first met. We first started. Well, that's that's the first time I actually met Dave, um, and we've been friends ever since and worked together with um, you know Eddie Henderson and Alf Hallstern, you know, all different kinds of people. Well, on a promotional piece, uh, he mentioned that, uh, the Mingus Big Band, but he also said something that I thought was really great. While he had the respect for you as the band leader, he said uh, that he was impressed by the fact that you had asked everybody in the band to write a tune or bring something to the table. 
Yeah, I mean, this is more than just a record date. I mean, you know, we've this band has actually been together for for several years now. Uh, I'd say probably five, five years. I mean, granted, we've all known each other much much longer than that. But as far as this being my quartet with Dave Kukowski and going on okay, Warren Ralph Peterson, um, you know, we we've been playing and touring for quite some time. So we have a sound, and we have you know, we have a camaraderie, and we have a, a musical relationship that I think is is really strong. So I really felt that um, it would be nice for uh, for everyone in the band to either write or bring something specifically for the group now that we know each other so well artistically and i and i think that 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 um that turned out really nicely kikoski and gonna um ended up bringing pieces and actually ralph brought a piece too we just didn't get get around to uh recording it but um yeah Ogana Okegwo, your bass player, uh, said uh, in this promotional thing that, that the fact that you're four different personalities, but you come together and you communicate well with each other. And I think that's the key to it, uh, making sure you can communicate. And when that happens, it's magic. Sure, sure. And, and, and it takes time. I mean, you know, these are all great musicians and, and, and they're all older than me and I've had have a countless years of experience so it's not about um their artistry but it takes time to develop that relationship with, with each other and and to have everyone's ego you know set aside and to really just be able to listen and create music and we're at that place now and that's why i think that's why this project is so special and that why this album came out and the way that it did it seems to me in listening to it that it it's a very personal album for you yeah, of course, of course. With all the, particularly with the, with the, you know, first, I guess, third of it being, uh, you know, revisiting the boys' choir for sure. It's very personal to me. And then also the other, some of the other tunes that I chose are just um, like the Charlie Ross composition. You know, it's, it's a piece that I've that I've heard for many, many years and always wanted to to play, and I never really got around to learning it. And so I, and so I learned it actually for this this date. Um, and Charlie Ross is one of the first people that I ever transcribed. You know, before I even really knew I was transcribing, before I even knew what that was. You know, writing down solos and learning i just uh you know listen to a lot of his stuff with the monk and i've always been a big fan of his work well you also uh you made mention briefly of uh your drummer who is ralph peterson and ralph is just a a phenom in the business as well and well respected by fellow musicians yeah, he's an amazing drummer. I mean, there's nothing more to say about that. I mean, he's a great educator, and pretty much all of the great young drummers that you hear on the scene now and, and over the last, I don't know, uh, 10, 15 years, or maybe even longer, really have spent a lot of time studying with Ralph. Uh, I think everybody, a lot of drummers owe him owe him a debt of gratitude for his uh, for his for his abilities and the music that he's made over the years and for his um, abilities as a teacher. A couple of the cuts on there is uh, a reference to your history, uh, like you said, with the Trinity Boys Choir in New Haven, and more specifically, uh, one of them being Kyrie, and then the other uh, being the Sanctus Benedictus uh, piece. Uh, and the composer was Benjamin Britten. That's right. Mm -hmm. And yeah, he was somebody that uh, inspired you when you were in that choir? Yeah, well, this this uh, this Misa Brevi's piece is uh, is a is was one of my favorite pieces of music that we did in the choir, and um, for many for many reasons. I mean, I guess on a more personal, sentimental viewpoint, it was it was it, this piece almost represented a coming of age for a lot of a lot of the choir boys, and it was very beautiful and very revealing piece. And so they always chose you know the the best choir boys to sing it, and it always really really struck everyone in a very uh, powerful way. And then when you go musically, and and, and again. And back then, you know, when I joined the choir, I was 11 years old, so I didn't really know anything about, you know, harmony or what was happening 
necessarily theoretically, but I just love the sounds and the intervals of the, of the music. And I just thought that was a great piece. So um, when I was thinking of putting music together, I, I've always wanted to rework this piece in some way. So I took the opportunity to do that. So yeah, his Mesa Refis contains uh, a lot of these works. And I took, uh, I think, three excerpts from that. Um, the Curie, the Sanctus, and Benedictus. On the uh, Benedictus, you also uh, feature uh, two people that joined in on uh, the quartet, and they were uh, David Gilmore and Randy Brecker. But I also understand you had a surprise special guest. Right, yeah. Um, actually, when I joined the Buck Choir, as I mentioned, I was 11, and my son, Vaughn, is uh, 11 now. Uh, and I asked him to uh, to sing the melody of that piece. Of course, you know, his mother, uh, Carolyn, is a, is a great vocalist, and even her mother, uh, Donna, and even her father, Jay, and her uh, brother, Michael, you know, the whole family are great musicians and vocalists, and of course, I have I have vocal and mic background, but my son actually is not a professional musician or singer in any way. Um, he doesn't consider himself as such, but... Um, but I think he's a great voice, and he, he for obvious reasons, has has great talent. Um, so I just uh, pretty much sang the melody to him a few times before we went in the studio, and uh, he just sang it and did a beautiful job. tell you that he sang it beautifully uh what was it like working with your son it was really cool you know i mean he's uh he doesn't like uh performing even though he has a lot of musical talent particularly you know he has a great voice and he has he's a natural singer he doesn't realize he's singing pretty much 24 7 he doesn't even know that he's singing he's singing so he's he's he has a he has a lot of he's a lot of talent but he he's he's nervous about singing in front of people and singing on stage so i wasn't sure how it was going to turn out i knew he could do it but i wasn't sure you know once we got in the studio if he'd really um be comfortable enough to sing and i think because i was there and you know we were joking around and and it was a very um a very relaxed environment and and i was there right beside him you know i sang it you know like i said a few times beforehand um and he has a great great memory for melodies so he just you know he just sang it and and just did a great job it was he was just i couldn't believe how natural it was uh it was just awesome no it was natural I mean, it, it didn't seem strained uh, it seemed like he was relaxed it it was certainly pure voice and he didn't yeah. skip a beat i mean it was it was just sheer beauty and what's funny is afterwards he he was he was joking around and he said that it was a lot of fun. He said, "Oh, that was fun. I, I really liked that." I and mean, he didn't, he surprised himself. He didn't even think he would he would uh, he would enjoy uh, doing it, but he loved it. So that's cool. Another track on this album is called "Chain Gang," and that's uh, reminiscent of some of the classes that you teach at Yale uh, in terms of work songs and field hollers uh, that were done by enslaved people what a tribute uh, that you offered how do you see that song 
Yeah, well, you, I mean, you, you, you pretty much said it pretty well. I mean, I teach a, I teach a jazz improvisation course at Yale, the Yale School of Music. Um, and uh, one of my first, uh, one of the first classes of the semester, I generally try to bring in some uh, either spirituals or maybe, uh, you know, field hollers and work songs that kind of just exemplify call and response, exemplify the, the origins of the blues and ultimately the origins of this music we call jazz, just so that people kind of really get some sort of perspective on what, this music is or where it comes from and what and what it's really about Searching and finding some some good music to play them, I came across musicologist Alan Lomax's uh, recordings of work songs, um, and one of them struck me particularly called "I'd Be So Glad When the Sun Goes Down," uh, sung by Ed Lewis and um, and a group of prisoners. Yeah, so I, I played that song for them a lot, and that song kind of inspired my somewhat of a modern take of a of a work song, and, and that's how Chain Gang came about. Well, it was very respectful, or is very respectful, and it just emotes the feeling of the hardships uh, that some of these people experienced uh, in those conditions that they worked in. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. It's melancholy, but also it also uh, provides some sort of comfort and, and gets you through um, the tough times, kind of like now. You know? Tell me about the title track. Uh, you pay homage to a lot of... Uh, past and personal mentors uh, in the business sure well um humble warrior kind of uh i mean i i'm definitely no no james williams or, or mogul miller but um, humble warrior kind of uh, I, I must say it was kind of inspired by a song that maybe james williams might have written something like alter ego or one of these songs it's just really a beautiful and subtle but also has uh, you know subtle intricacies in, in the harmony but but evokes just beauty and pure and, and purity and i think um uh, a lot of these musicians who i really admire people that we lost recently like Roy hargrove and harold mayburn and, you know larry willis richard wines i mean this is unfortunately there's a long list of them um i really consider them humble warriors i mean despite how many accolades they ha they have uh, acquired over the years and despite how important they are to this music and, and how much uh, of of a great you know respect we all have for them and and how much uh, of a you know their level of ability they continue to uh, be humble and and just have a, a certain level of humility about them and i think the music ends up ultimately keeping you humble because we all know how difficult this music is how intense it is and how much it really takes to to requires to play this music and those musicians always i just every time i uh, came across them and interacted with them they always had a great feeling and were very giving and, and just good people and um so this this piece was kind of like an homage to to them in some ways mm -hmm. 
Do you consider yourself a humble warrior? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, uh, like I said, the music keeps me humble. I mean, there's definitely days where, you know, I feel like I'm on top of the world. I'm feeling good. And there's days when I'm not in a place like New York and in the community, like the jazz community, it's easy um, to get knocked right back down. And uh, in a way that that's, that's, that's fine with me. I mean, that's why I keep getting better. I mean, I, you know, there's, I know there's always somebody um, who's, who's going to play the saxophone better than me. There's always someone who's going to put out a better album, you know, uh, you know, better, even better as of course a subjective word but you know the point is is um if we're really true to uh, ourselves and our abilities and, and the power of this music um how can we not allow it to uh, keep us uh, humble to a degree i'm sure that if uh, you stand out as someone who's humble but yet dynamic and talented uh, you're going to get that respect and that homage paid to you as well i'm sure no well, that would be nice that would be nice <laughs> Well, you, uh, I think, are uh, on a fast track for earning that, my friend. Uh, in the meantime, uh, another uh, couple of tracks on there. One uh, uh, I, I found very uh, identifiable. As soon as I started playing it, I said, well, that is definitely George Cables you did, a.k.a. Reggie. Yeah, I was fortunate enough to do a little gig with him at Mesro. In fact, we just played trio, Ugana and George Cables and myself. And um, he brought in uh, this tune for us to play, uh, AKA Reggie. And I just fell in love with it. In fact, Ugana and I both did. And we both asked him for the music. We were like, oh man, I got to play this again. And then when this record date came up, um, right away, this was one of the first pieces I knew I was going to play. So uh, I'm glad I got to play it on here. And George was happy that I recorded it. And then lastly, uh, the, the track that I, I found uh, very, very interesting, uh, and you just mentioned uh, George Cables as being a beast on the piano, your own beast in your quartet turns loose on Back to Square One.
Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. Kakowski brought that in. He's yeah, he's a bad dude, and he uh, he destroys that one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, we we have a lot of fun on the road, and one of the interesting things is, is, is about this record about the band in general is you know we when we're on the road, I think people uh, you know uh, expect a real hard hitting band. They know us to be uh, to take no prisoners and to and to you know uh, really uh, hit it hard, and we do that. Um, but also when we're on the road, people hear a whole set of ours. You hear kind of. Uh, some of the more subtle intricacies of what we do too and composition on the album that i think uh, highlights that is ugano kegwo's um undefined but with dave kikoski's piece i think that last one that's a great example of just uh what i think the band has come kind of known for uh, uh in many ways just kind of hitting it hard and yeah i wanted to, i wanted to let um, kikoski rip on something and um and he did it. <laughs> what's the feedback that you're getting on the album i, I think it's just phenomenal I got to say, yeah, so far, I mean, I don't, I don't want to jinx it, but so far people really enjoy it, man. It makes me feel good. I mean, uh, people, I think, appreciate uh, my inclusion of the, the choral uh, aspect of the music, um, those, those uh, the Benjamin Britten works. And, um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's funny. I've, 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 I got a critique one time, a long time ago, of someone saying that even though it was actually a good, a good critique of my album, they liked it. It was a review. They liked the album, but they were saying that for one of the first things they said is they generally don't like albums with a theme or with songs that each have some sort of story behind it because they thought that it was kind of, um, kind of like a, you know a disingenuous. And and but uh, I kind of when I when I make albums and when I write songs in general, it's uh, it's hard for me to get inspired to write unless I'm actually inspired by something, whether that's a story or a person or or some sort of event. And um, I think this album has that. I mean, each piece. Uh, is really is really personal and inspired by something in my life or whether it's uh, a great musician like charlie rouse or whether it's just the sound of the band like kakoski's tune or or Ghana's tune or whether it's um, what, what i was doing at yale you know that's just that's just how i come up with music and that's just how i write so anyway i'm just glad it's being well received and i think i think one good part about i guess my albums in general is that it, they, they kind of give the listener a, a little bit more of an insight into my personality and into my life and i think um that's part of at least that's part of my my art i mean that's part of what i do to get you know i'm, I'm generally kind of shy and i don't let tip people know too much about my personal life so in some ways this is kind of a way to you know every year every few years when i put out an album to let people know a little bit something more well this this project really turned out to be what i would think was your goal and that was to create a wonderful collaboration because everybody contributed a piece to it Sure. Yep. Of course. Of course. And I wouldn't, you know, and I, I feel more comfortable doing that with these guys because, like I said, they're my friends, and we've been playing together so long, and I feel like we have a, a definite personal connection. So, in a way, the fact that Ugana, you know, Ugana and I've been playing together with Tom Harrell for, uh, you know, we played for ten years together. So, you know, we have a bit a deep personal connection. The same with Ralph Peterson and myself and Kikoski. I mean, we all known each other uh, for for decades. So. I think this is actually the third album that this this particular quartet has done. Uh, it doesn't mean that we that we won't do another one. We very well might, but uh, I definitely have some some different uh, ideas and projects in mind. So we'll just have to see kind of what comes up next and where where I'm at and logistically and you know just what what my mind decides to focus on. But uh, this is the band for now for sure, and I can't wait till we can actually um, get out of the house and travel and play again because I really want to play this music for people. 
Wayne, it's been a, a delight uh, speaking with you today, and um, I'm looking for the return of more music to be heard and to be seen uh, in a performance setting for all of us. Uh, it'll be good for you monetarily. It'll be good for your healing, our healing, uh, and just to enjoy as people together. Indeed, indeed. Thanks so much. I really uh, appreciate you having me, Alan, and uh, all the best to you and your family and all your loved ones. Thanks, Alan. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of All That's Jazz with Grammy Award-winning tenor saxophonist Wayne Escoffrey. Our thanks to Ben Sidron for our theme song, Mr. P's Shuffle. Our next episode will feature jazz publicist, promoter, and music professional Lydia Liebman. To learn more about this podcast and to offer us your feedback, please visit our website, allthatsjazz.net.